Father in heaven, I pray that as we discuss these subjects that are very important to an understanding of the gospel, I pray that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds, help us to understand, and may we see clearly for ourselves what the Bible says on these subjects. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to suggest to you that the subject we are considering this meeting may be the most important subject you will ever think about in your Christian experience. And that sounds strange because we're addressing the question, what is sin? How can that be the most important question? The reason it is, is because once you have decided what sin is, if you're logical and if you're consistent, you will have every other aspect of the gospel defined automatically. Once you have defined what sin is, justification is decided, sanctification is decided, perfection is decided, whether it is possible or not and how it can happen. Once you've decided what sin is, you're locked into a certain way of thinking about righteousness by faith and salvation. That's why I believe this is the most important subject you will make a decision about in your entire religious experience. Because, my friends... No matter how much we know about the doctrines and about prophecy and all of the other things that relate to end time events, if we don't have a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we're not going to be in heaven. We are not going to be there. There will be a lot of people in heaven who will be in kindergarten class learning things they never knew about doctrinally. But there will not be one person there who has a bitter spirit or an unchristlike spirit. Not one. And so that's why I believe this is one of the most important subjects we will address. All right, you have the outlines in front of you. The key question is simple. What is the nature of that sin for which I will be condemned and lost for all eternity? That's all I want to know. I don't want to know about definitions of sin as the Bible might have them for this or that or the other, about extended effects and things. No, I just want to know one question. What is the nature of that sin? What is the kind of sin that I will be lost for? For all eternity, if it's found in me. Because I don't want that sin in me. I want to know how to get that sin out of me. What is the nature of that sin? Well, you have two different definitions there as you see them. Definition A is original sin. That's the classical theological term. I've made the subheading sin as nature. And as I said this morning, sin as nature means that we are condemned and lost not because of what we do or say or think, but we are condemned and lost because we inherited bad equipment from our parents. We are condemned because of our nature, the nature that is within us. And if we all think honestly about our nature, it's not so good, is it? Our nature is a nature that pulls us the wrong way, and we know that. And that nature, it is said by those who believe in definition A, that nature is what condemns us. Here is the way it is stated by one. And remember, all of the statements that I read this morning and the ones I will read today are all from Seventh-day Adventists. This is not an issue of Adventist versus Baptist. This is an issue of Adventism. This is an issue that you will face in your churches. This is an issue you will face in your schools, in your families. This is an issue which is very muddy throughout the Adventist world. Here is what is said by one who believes definition A. Sinful man is not lost because he has committed sins, but because he is born of Adam and therefore stands condemned in him even before he commits sins of his own. That is definition A. We're lost because Adam sinned. 
and we are still paying the penalty for Adam's sin. Another person said it this way, we make sinful choices because we are already sinners by nature. Why do you lose your temper? Because you're already a lost sinner. Because you got within you that proclivity, that tendency, that inclination. That's why you lose your temper. It's just a natural result of being a sinner. And that's where the very familiar phrase comes from, we are born sinners. Here's a way I think maybe we can illustrate what we're talking about. We all know how um, volcanoes operate. That volcanoes have within them a uh, magma chamber. And in this magma chamber, pressures build up. And suddenly there is no longer any ability to withhold, withstand it. The block comes off, whatever it is, and the eruption occurs. All right, visualize that magma chamber, which is down here, deep down in the volcano. That is what is termed that as sin. And I put it in capital letters because that's the way it is referred to. Sin, the real sin, the sin for which we are condemned and lost, the sin for which we stand responsible from the moment of our birth, from the moment of our birth. Now, when the pressures get too great, this magma chamber may find its way up to the surface and may erupt into various eruptions of, of various kinds. And this is what would be termed sins. Sins. That's when you lose your temper. That's when you overeat. That's when you say something unkind about someone else. That's when you are selfish and show that selfishness. These are the sins you commit. So the sin which is in you, deep down in your nature, erupts and, for, and, and produces various acts of sin. And the bottom line is that this is the real problem. The magma chamber of sin is what we are guilty and condemned for. And we then sometimes erupt. Now theoretically, let's just say theoretically, that this is capped off. And you no longer erupt in... In, in temper tantrums, that you no longer are proud and selfish, and that you no longer uh, uh, are doing the things and saying the things you should have. You've still got this. Till how long? Till Jesus comes. It's not going to go away. So you've got this, which means you are still condemned for your nature, even when you are not exercising that nature anymore. You are not yielding to that nature. Those things aren't coming out anymore. Theoretically, if that could happen, you would still be guilty of sin. So that means, if that's the real truth, and that's definition A, we're referring to definition A, which is the standard definition of sin throughout the Christian world, that means for this sin down here, we need a constant covering of justification. Because you are constantly condemned, you need to be constantly forgiven. Justification is forgiveness. And so constant justification must cover this magma chamber of sin. Sometimes it's called the umbrella covering because you must have the umbrella of justification over your head for your entire life. And that is the way it has to be, even though you are no longer sinning anymore. But it really what it boils down to is because you have this magma chamber of sin, it's just inevitable that some sins are going to erupt now and then. I mean, you just can't help that. So I gave you the theoretical possibility that it would stop, but in their real understanding, it's not really going to stop. And uh, it'll still erupt now and then, and so the justification covering will be up here as well. And justification will cover this as well throughout uh, your lifetime, even after the close of probation. And that's crucial to this understanding. You need forgiveness 
after the close of probation as much as you need it today. That's what this theology teaches. Which means, and this, what, what happens to Adventist understandings of uh, Jesus in the most holy place? If Jesus steps out of the most holy place, puts down the, the, uh, the incense uh, uh, that covers our sins, or the, the forgiveness incense, and no longer forgives our sins, then how are we going to stay justified? once he is out of the most holy place. So a new theory comes into place, and that is that justification covers the future. If you're justified now, it'll cover you down the future until Jesus comes. The umbrella covering remains in place because you were justified on January 25, 1994. And so it then covers the rest of your life until Jesus comes, as long as you continue to believe in Jesus, even though the sins are continuing to erupt now and then. So that's the understanding of original sin as is believed by most of the Christian world. All right, that's definition A. And by the way, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to hold a few minutes open for questions at the end of this presentation. So if you have questions along the way, remember what those questions are. All right, definition B. Now definition, oh, by the way, I want to say one other thing. It is well understood that this is the dividing line in our understanding of salvation by faith. For instance, by Roy Adams, who believes in this theory and has written a number of books on the subject, he said this, the tension between these two understandings of sin lies at the heart of the perennial debate over sanctification, perfection, and Christ's nature in the Adventist church. Amen. There it is, straight on. This is the heart of the debate right here. If this could be solved, every issue of righteousness by faith could be solved in the Adventist church within months. If this issue could be solved, and we could come to agreement on it in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Here's another one. This comes from, uh, let's see, Norman Gully. Um, these two conflicting views on the nature of Christ spring from two differing understandings of what constitutes sin. There you have it again. This one from Zercher. Without question, the first step toward a solution on the nature of Christ lies in a biblical definition of the concept of sin. So there we have it again. From many perspectives, this is agreed that this is what it is. By the way, just by the way, Augustine was the first one clearly to define and espouse this doctrine back in the 3rd and 4th centuries. He's the one that first gave voice to this particular theory. Listen to what he said. Just listen. Our first parents fell into open disobedience because already they were secretly corrupted. For the evil act had never been done had not an evil will preceded it. The wicked deed then, that is to say, the transgression of eating the forbidden fruit was committed by persons who were already wicked. That evil fruit could be brought forth only by a corrupt tree. Isn't that interesting? That they sinned because they were already sinners. How did that happen? At what moment did they become sinners? And you know what? I've seen something close to that expressed even in Adventist thinking on the subject. That Eve sinned before she took the fruit. Have you heard that? Because she separated from Adam, remember? 
And the Lord had warned through the angels, don't separate from your husband. Don't be on your own. It's too risky to do battle with Satan. Remember what Randy Skeet said last night. You don't do battle with Satan. You don't argue with Satan. And so some have said, well, she sinned when she separated from Adam. Folks, the key point is she made a mistake when she separated from Adam. She made a mistake. But you know what sin is? When God commands something and you know his command and you willfully transgress that command. He didn't command, don't separate from the Father. That was an angel's warning. That was an angel's caution. That was a safeguard. But it was not God's command. What was God's command? It wasn't even don't touch, was it? Satan turned that one around. It was don't eat of the fruit. And when they transgressed that command, they sinned. Known command, rebellion against known command of God. That's sin. But now we're hearing, Augustine said it first, and in the Adventist church we're hearing, well, Eve sinned because she had already become a sinner, somehow in the sight of God. And so this says the same thing, we're already sinners, therefore we commit various sins. All right, definition B, definition two. I guess it is B, it is. Sin as choice. Sin as choice says everything that definition A says. That we are born with bad equipment. That because of this bad equipment, it leads us naturally to things that are not in harmony with God's will. But it says one thing different, and that's the key difference. We are not automatically going to hell because Adam sinned. We are not automatically going to hell because we've got bad equipment inside. We are not automatically lost because we had an accident of birth and happened to be born, as I like to phrase it, on the wrong side of heaven's railroad tracks. And that's where we are. No angel would like to live in the slums of this earth, I guarantee you, no matter what high-rise you live in. <laughs> so right here, the only difference is we are not condemned because of nature. That's what definition B says. Another person has put it this way. Um, sin is not so much biological as it is theological. It does not originate in the genes but in the mind, whereby a deliberate choice, we place ourselves opposite God's will. Such a choice precedes the act of sin. And I think that's a fair understanding of definition B. It is a deliberate choice to place ourselves in opposition to God's will. Well, folks, definition B is the minority position. I'll tell you what, there aren't many Christians who believe in definition B. And in Adventist scholarly circles, there are very few that believe in definition B. So you're going to have to make a hard choice right here as you study this subject. Are you going to go against the grain of Christian thinking and of even of much of Adventist thinking? And are you going to make a decision about a subject that will turn everything around on righteousness by faith as to how you believe it and how you live it? I would offer this suggestion, though. It is not always bad to be in the minority. Amen. Noah, someone said, entered the ark as a minority. But when he stepped off, he was the vast majority. <laughs> All right, section two. I say that I've said that there is a difference between evil and guilt. Now, what exactly do I mean by that? Uh, evil is pervasive in our world and in our natures. Guilt is a different issue. Let me illustrate. Some of you have heard this before because this isn't the first time I've presented this subject, so you'll tolerate my favorite illustration. If you have a little animal in your house, you might wonder why that little animal was ever chosen to be a pet in your family because it's schizophrenic. It has a widely split personality. 
I mean, there's one side of that little animal that is loving and peaceful and loves to curl up on your lap or rub up against your legs or enjoy your company when it wants to. And then there's another side of its personality that you only really see clearly when you open the door to the great out of doors. And your little cat goes out into the real world from which its ancestors came way before you ever d d domesticated it as a uh, house pet. Now, what is your little pet going out into your backyard to do to admire the beautiful sunset that's taking place? <laughs> Spend an hour or two watching the sunset, smelling the roses on your bush. Is that what it's out there for? See, in your house, its brain gets all cluttered up with rules and regulations, and it can't remember where to eat and where not to eat half the time. But outdoors, the rules are very simple, and they're very easy to understand. There are only two that matter. Number one, you run from anything that's bigger than you. That's very important. And number two, you catch anything that's smaller than you. Life is very simple. It's right down to basics. And your cat is going out there to do what its nature programs it to do. Because, you see, it has a fallen nature, too. It wasn't the same nature God put in that cat in Eden. It was another nature now that took over. Because now there's a predator-prey relationship that was not there in the garden. So its nature was changed, too. And it's going out there in your backyard to take care of Mrs. and to enjoy doing its job. It isn't going to just do it and have to, you know, like you go to an eight-hour work day and sweat your way through it. No, it's going out there to enjoy its work. And when it catches that little mouse, does it ever have fun? I mean, it plays with that mouse. It'll throw it over its shoulder even sometimes to see if that mouse can run away again so it can catch it all over again. And it'll do it as often as the mouse can run. Have you noticed? It has fun torturing another of God's creatures to death bit by bit. Because, you know, a mouse has uh, uh, nerve endings too, doesn't it? And a mouse can suffer pain. And your cat has not the slightest compassion in the world for the pain of that other creature that is also a creation of God. Not the slightest. You know, you could, you could say, well, sure, the predator-prey relationship needs to exist, but predators should have a conscience that they could kill quickly, mercifully, and humanely. But they don't. Have you watched lions eating zebras while they're still alive? Wow. I mean, that is not the way compassion works, I would say. And so here we have a brutal relationship between a sweet, loving little pet and an animal that isn't as strong as your sweet, loving little pet. It's the strength of the mighty versus the weakness of the weak. And you watch it all from your backyard. What do you do? when your precious little pet comes marching up to your back door, feathers sticking out of all sides of its mouth, waiting to be praised for the good job it has done in your backyard. Got rid of one more of those nasty little songbirds. Cleaned out your yard. What do you do? Do you have a little trial right on your back porch? Do you get a jury together to decide guilt or innocence? Do you have a little jail cell prepared in case the verdict come down guilty and your cat is off for three years of imprisonment? <laughs> you don't do any of those things. You look at your cat. You scold your cat. You say, I'm going to get a bell on you. And you welcome that little killer back into your house. You do, don't you? 
what, what you have just done is to make a distinction between evil and guilt right on the spot in your backyard. What your cat did was evil. It's part of an evil world. It's part of Satan's way of doing things. It's part of killing without mercy. It is part of violence. It's not God's way. It's an evil way. Only because Satan is in charge of this world. But you decided that your cat deserved no sentence, no guilt, no condemnation. Why? Because you also decided that in that little brain, it's a pretty small brain, there is apparently no room for something you and I call conscience. The ability to differentiate between right and wrong, good and evil on the basis of moral values. What is right and what is wrong. Your cat is simply exercising and following its fallen nature. That's all. Its nature controls what it does. We call it instinct. It's just nature. Fallen nature. And your cat is doing what its nature has programmed it to do. So I'm saying you make that decision every day of your life as you observe things, as you see news reports of people dying in tornadoes or whatever the situation may be. You, just say, you don't say, why, they're a bunch of sinners, aren't they? It doesn't even cross your mind. You say the tra that's the tragedy of living in an evil world. So here we make distinctions all the time between evil and guilt. And now what we want to know, remember what I said this morning? Don't believe what I say because I say it. Now we want to know what does the Bible say. So get your Bible. We're on a trip now. And you have the text in front of you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God's first command to his first created beings, and watch it. God's word didn't happen like he said it would. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, the Hebrew says, dying, you die. And folks, that meant going out of existence. This is not first death, sleep for a while and be resurrected. In the day that you eat thereof, you end your existence. That's what God is saying. Did Adam and Eve end their existence that day? Did they even end their existence 900 years down the line? No, they went to the grave for a while. Well, what in the world happened here? Does God's promise, promise fail in this case? Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And I'll give you a little caution here. If you're using a different translation than the King James, you will see this read a little differently. I'm using the King James, and I'm focusing on the last half of this verse. It speaks of the book of life of the Lamb. You know who the Lamb is. And what is the Lamb? He is slain from the foundation of the world? Well, now that can't be right either. Because he was killed 4,000 years after the earth was founded. So what does this mean? That he was slain from the foundation of the world. And how does that help us understand Genesis 2.17? All right, now you've got some statements from the Spirit of Prophecy, and we're going to go back and forth a little bit. The Spirit of Prophecy statements now. Because isn't that what the Spirit of Prophecy is for, to help simplify and enlighten the Scriptures? Don't bring it in ahead of the Bible. Bring it in after you've done your Bible study. Why was not the death penalty at once enforced in his case? Isn't that the question? God said you die, they didn't die. 
because a ransom was found. God's only begotten Son volunteered to take the sin of men upon himself and to make an atonement for the fallen race. Now, how did that happen? Watch carefully. The instant, the instant, man accepted the temptations of Satan. Is that when Adam and Eve come crawling back to God and saying, we've sure made a mess of things. We're looking pretty bad right now. Will you get us out of this mess? Is that when it happened? No. no. The instant, before they knew how serious the problem was, and did the very things God had said he should not do. Christ, the Son of God, stood between the living and the dead. Who's dead? Not one animal, not one anyone has died in the universe. Not one leaf has fallen from any tree. Adam and Eve are as good as dead because when God says you're dead, you're dead. They are as good as dead. And Jesus Christ steps in between the living, the rest of the universe, and the dead ones saying, let the punishment fall on me. I will stand in man's place. He, mankind, shall have another chance. There we are, my friends. That's why you and I are sitting here today. That's why we're here, because of what we just read. God's promises never, ever, ever, ever fail, friends. When God said, in the day you eat, you will die, it came to pass. Because on that day, Jesus Christ took the death penalty upon himself. And remember, an omniscient mind is a little different than ours. I don't know what will happen to me tomorrow, therefore I can't worry about tomorrow, right? I might die tomorrow, but I certainly can't worry about that today because that's totally unknown to me. Does God know if he will, does Jesus know if he will die 4,000 years down the line the moment he steps in? And he experiences, this is omniscient mind, he experiences everything that will happen on Calvary for 4,000 years before it happens, over and over in his mind, knowing what he is going to experience. Did he die? Was he slain from the foundation of the world, my friends? In a very real sense. And here he stands in man's place, and he takes the punishment that day, and he becomes the sin-bearer that day, not in Gethsemane. That was just the final deciding moment. But he takes the sin of men upon himself on that day, and that's why you and I are sitting here with a chance for eternal life. And more than that, that's why any human being today who lives on the earth, whether or not they have ever heard the name of Jesus Christ, or even if they hate the name of Jesus Christ, they are alive today because of that act of the garden. This is for the whole world, and this is what Jesus died to protect, the right of every human being to have eternal life if they wanted it. And even if they wanted to reject it, he died to protect that too, that right of free choice. Notice the next one says, as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Keep that in mind. People sometimes want to divide up and say, we're, now we're going to define sin, and we'll find out what sin is, and then over here we're going to find out what justification is and what Jesus did for us and what grace is. My friends, you can't do that. You can't define what happened in the Garden of Eden without also realizing that Jesus stepped in and did something in that original arrangement. It says, as soon as Adam sinned, the Son of God presented himself as surety for the human race with just as much power to avert the doom pronounced upon the guilty as when he died upon the cross of Calvary. That's why Abel could be saved. He hadn't died yet. Christ hadn't died. That's why everyone in the Old Testament could be saved, is because the death of Jesus Christ was decided at that moment. And all could experience that by faith. In a nutshell, that's why I don't believe in definition A. Because definition A, sin is nature, 
says that I am still under condemnation, paying a penalty because Adam sinned and I inherit his nature. I ask you a simple question. When Christ pays for something, is it paid for? Do I have to pay a little extra to make sure? But the Christian world says, we're still paying for Adam's sin. And yet, that means that maybe Christ didn't really pay for Adam's sin. Somehow I'm paying for it too. And that doesn't sound too right to me, friends. When Christ pays for something, it's paid for. Now, could Adam and Eve or anyone else still be lost after he paid for Adam's sin? Could they? We have a perfect example of that, don't we? What's his name? Cain. Why was Cain lost? What was the basic problem with Cain? Did he really believe he needed a savior? See, Cain said, have some of us said, it's not my fault. It's my parents. They were the ones that messed things up for me. They got me into this mess. They were hard on me. They did this. They did that. It's not my fault that I'm this way. I'm a product of my environment. We do it. Did Cain say that as well? Not my problem. It was Adam's problem. And really, God didn't treat Adam very fairly anyway in kicking him out of the garden. He should have given him a second chance or something. He, he didn't do it right. So he's really blaming God, not Adam. And that's why he would not bring the offering that God commanded to bring. He would bring anything else but that. And so he decided, well, I'll just bring a few old rotten vegetables that I don't want out of my garden. Well, and so that was his offering. The reason Cain was lost was because he rejected the remedy. The remedy was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And Cain says, I don't want him. That's the reason Cain was lost. And that's why anyone can be lost then or now. The only reason I know of that anyone can be lost today is by rejecting, walking away, trampling over the cross and turning away from the remedy. That's the only reason I know of that anyone can be lost. Not because Adam sinned. Not because I have a fallen nature. But because I want to do it my way and I'm not going to listen to God's way. And I'm just going to reject his plan. Don't want it. Do it my own way. And then we can be lost too. I believe that's how Cain was lost and that's how we can be lost. Is by rejecting the remedy. Not by inheriting some bad equipment that we unfortunately were born with. Alright, let's see what else we can learn. Back to the outline. I'm going to read some of these texts. I've given this to you so you can read them all at your own leisure. Turn to John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples one day. And they find a man who was blind from his birth. And the disciples say, what a great opportunity to ask a question that's been bothering us for a long time. Look at their question in chapter 9, verse 2. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice their question is not, is this man a sinner? No, that's obvious. How? How could they tell that this man was a sinner? He's blind. Well, of course he's a sinner. What we want to know is, because he was born that way, this bothers us. Did his parents do something that he is being punished for? Or did he sin? When could that be if he was born that way? In his mother's womb. 
Can you sin before you're born? That's their question. Wow, they're getting deep, aren't they, in theology? And look at Jesus' answer. Disappoints them. Jesus' answer mostly disappoints. Have you noticed that? He doesn't answer the right way. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Jesus says, you've got it all wrong from the start. This is not a question of this man being a sinner at all. Blindness has nothing to do with sin, personal sin. Blindness is evil, not guilt. That's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. This man is not a sinner because he is blind. Those two don't equate together. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. You see, right now the works of Satan were being made manifest in the poor man. If Satan would have his way with us, my friends, every one of us would be born blind. The works of Satan... How did Jesus negate the works of Satan? Did he go up to the blind man and hold out his hand and say, Your blindness is forgiven. Is that how he dealt with the problem? I forgive your blindness. Didn't say that at all, did he? Remember the story? He healed, he recreated those eyes so they could see. That's what evil needs. Evil does not need forgiveness. Evil needs recreation. Evil needs healing. Your cat doesn't need to be forgiven. It needs a new brain. A new programming. A new nature. And forgiveness is not the issue. That's the dilemma. That's the problem. Because sin and evil are all squashed together in people's minds. That's why there is a mistaken understanding here. So that's one. Let's see what else we can learn here. Turn to John chapter 5 where Jesus seems to contradict himself in two verses right next to each other. John 5, verses 24 and 25. Verily, verily, truthfully, I say to you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. According to the words of Jesus, when can you have everlasting life? At what moment? Can you have everlasting life today as you sit here in this meeting? Yes. All right, but notice the next verse. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Well, what dead are these that are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and live again? Well, those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, they will be resurrected. But he has just said they have everlasting life. And now he says those same people are dead. Doesn't Jesus contradict himself? All right. Here is what happened in the Garden of Eden when Jesus stepped in and dealt with the sin of Adam. The sin that Adam brought into the world, the sin that was the beginning of everything that we know of today, was divided into two parts at that moment with two different results. The first was evil, which I mean all of the results of Adam's sin. Bad nature, bad world, bad animals, whatever. The evil that is in our world. The other aspect was guilt, which is a totally different part of the sin problem that Adam brought into the world. We will never be lost, condemned for evil, unless you believe definition A. But in the Bible, as far as I can tell, we will never, never be lost for an evil world and an evil nature and an evil inheritance. Now, evil leads to death. But what death is it? 
What does Jesus call this death? Sleep. Sleep. That's right. So now, death was divided into two parts. Death as sleep would come to all men because of the evil results of Adam's sin. But what does guilt lead to? What we call hell, which is the final death, final separation. No sleep here. There is no coming back from this death. So right here, evil leads to the result of the first death, and that's why Jesus says in verse 25 that some will be dead. But those righteous ones who have had their guilt forgiven, they will have everlasting life even though they sleep for a little bit. Because you see, when guilt is gone, there is no hell in your future, and you have everlasting life at that moment. Sleep is just a blink of an eye to God and to you. It is really meaningless in the great scheme of things. And this is what leads to that first death. So I don't think Jesus really contradicted himself in these verses. Let's see what else we can find. I'm going to skip down to section C, guilt because of choice. Turn to John chapter 9, verse 41. John 9, 41. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, if ye were blind, now here blindness means ignorance, not knowing, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, we see, we know what's right and wrong, our eyes are open, therefore your sin remaineth. What is Jesus tying sin to in this verse? Knowledge. Knowledge, absolutely right. It is knowledge. It is what we call light, light that comes to us. And when does that light impact us in terms of us individually? Because light shines on the whole world. Do you know everything that's right and wrong from the moment of your birth? Or do you gradually keep come to understandings and make choices based on that light? That's what turns evil into guilt. When light comes, choices are made that are in, not in harmony with God's will. And that evil turns into guilt. The Pharisees had guilt. All right, tend to turn to James 4.17. If there were one text in the Bible and only one text on the subject of sin, and this were the only one, we'd have enough. This one is as clear as it can possibly be. James 4.17. If you want a Bible study, simple one-text Bible study on this subject, this is your verse. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Isn't that easy? Simple? Does a baby know to do good? A two-month-old baby, does it know? No. And yet we are told that a two-month-old baby stands condemned and subject to the second death. I read that this morning. But no. To him that knows and does not obey, follow. To him it is sin. Seems to me that original sin, sin as nature, cannot survive this text. You decide for yourself. Turn to James chapter 1. The clearest definition of temptation I have found in the Bible, and watch it carefully right here, watch yourself right now. Do you know the difference between temptation and sin? Most Christians do not. Do you know the difference between temptation and sin? 
James 1.14. But every man is tempted, that's every one of us, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now the word lust means a desire for anything that is out of harmony with the will of God and it comes right out of our fallen nature. We have a lust for food. We have a lust for pride. We have a lust for gossip. It's all lust. It's all something pulling us toward the wrong thing. And it says when we are drawn of our own nature, our own fallen nature, and enticed. In this world of sin, temptation and sin take two things. Two things, not just one. When you watch the evening news, are you personally interested, just you yourself, in trying everything you hear on the evening news at least once to see how it will feel? Are you? <laughs> Why not? Aren't those all pulls to some sort of sin or another that you're watching that people are doing? Whether they're robbing a bank or hitting a person and running, whatever it is. Aren't those all things that are pulls toward sin? Well, then why aren't you pulled to do all of those things? Because they're all pulls toward our evil natures. Well, I guess each one of us is constructed a little differently, right? And what pulls me doesn't pull you, and what pulls you doesn't pull me. I can stand back and say, wow, you're attracted to that? Oh, poor you. <laughs> and then you can stand and laugh at me when I'm pulled to something just as crazy on the other side that you have no interest in, right? So that, that's why there are a thousand stimuli to sin out there in the world. Satan is designed a stimulus for everything. But you know, when a temptation happens, it's not the stimulus out there. You weren't tempted. You weren't drawn to do what you saw in the evening news. There was no temptation for you in that. It takes something, a stimulus out there, and a responsive pull from inside your nature. And when the two come together, James 1.14, you're drawn of your own lust and enticed. When the two come together, there is sin or temptation. Definition A says sin. Definition B says temptation. Yes. Definition B says, even if, I'm sorry, definition A says, even if you never carry that out, let's just say, you are a great ice cream lover. And I'm just talking about just eating a little ice cream. When you get it, you load it down. I mean, it's a gallon at a time. Okay? And when you are drawn to that, and you walk by that Baskin and Robbins counter or whatever it is, or, you know, the whole works. When you walk by and your nature is just pulling you over there like a magnet, and you say, and you say, no, my higher nature will control my lower nature. My reason will control my appetite. And I'm going to walk right on past that. You still have sinned according to definition A. You are still just as guilty as if you downed the whole gallon. That's right. Definition A says it is not the act. It is not even the choice. It is the pull that is the sin. And because you are pulled, you have sinned against God just as much as if you carried it out. That's definition A. That's the standard definition of sin throughout the Christian world. And many Adventists believe that today. That sin is the temptation process. But is that what James 1.14 says? It says that the drawing is the temptation. When does sin occur? In verse 15. 
Then when lust, this pull, has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. That's way down at the end of the line, isn't it? You've got four steps there. You've got drawing, and you've got enticing, and you've got conceiving, like the birth process, and you've got sin. Where does sin take place? Definition A says in step one. Definition B says in step three, conceiving. Okay? So you've got a major difference of opinion on what sin is, don't you? And what you need a remedy for. Because see, here's the problem. If sin is temptation, how often are we sinning? All the time. You know, we're pulled toward this, we're pulled toward that, we're pulled toward the other. The pulls are constant. So how often do we need justification? Constantly, even after the close of probation? Because folks will still be drawn, at least I know to one thing after the close of probation, we'll be drawn to discouragement and doubt very strongly, much more than we are today. When everything is going against us, it doesn't look like the promises are going to be fulfilled. We're out there all alone on an island somewhere or in a cave or in jail. And there is no hope, apparently, of this thing turning out right. The greatest temptation, the greatest pull from within our nature will be discouragement and doubt. And so if that's a sin, then we'll be sinning after the close of probation. And we'll need forgiveness after the close of probation. And you can kiss Adventism goodbye. Now, 144,000 is gone, close of probation. We're the only church that teaches a close of probation. No other church can handle that with the other gospel. And all of the sealing of the 144,000 and all the vindication of God, it's done. It's done. If you believe in definition A, Adventism is dying. That's how serious this problem is, my friends. This is not a minor little issue, a theological issue to be decided. This is an issue of whether Adventism will or will not fulfill its mission as God's remnant church. So back again to this verse. I believe that sin takes place in step three, not in step one. It's temptation in step one, temptation in step two, sin in step three, and we'll see exactly what that means in a few minutes. All right? I think I'll leave the rest of these texts to be read on your own. Ezekiel 18 says, The son won't die for his father, nor the father for the son but each for his own, and there are a number of statements that you can read on your own. So now go to the Spirit of Prophecy statements with me. First page of Ellen White statements, halfway down the page, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 306. It is inevitable that children should suffer from the consequences, that's evil consequences, of parental wrongdoing, but they are not punished for the parents' guilt except as they participate in their sins. Pretty clear, I think. You decide. Last paragraph on the page, Gospel Workers 162. Light makes manifest and reproves the errors that were concealed in darkness, and as light comes, the life and character of men must change correspondingly to be in harmony with it. Sins that were once sins of ignorance. My friends, it is a problem when you commit a sin of ignorance because God is never vindicated by a sin of ignorance. He is not vindicated when an honest Sunday keeper keeps Sunday. But he is not a sinner either because the person has had no light on the subject. So there's no sin to be confessed until the light comes. It is a sin of ignorance to be breaking the fourth commandment until the light comes, and then it's a sin of rebellion. That changes it from a sin of ignorance, which is evil, to a sin of rebellion, which is guilt. So here again, a sin of ignorance does no good for God, but God is merciful. He realizes our ignorance and he takes that into account. He does not hold us guilty. All right, page two. 
Second paragraph on page two. Second paragraph, page two. Remembering I'm giving much material so you can study this on your own, not because you hear me say it. The sin of evil speaking begins with the cherishing of evil thoughts. Guile includes impurity in all its forms. Now the key, here's the sentence. An impure thought tolerated, an unholy desire cherished, and the soul is contaminated. Now let me reread that sentence according to definition A. Definition A. An impure thought untolerated, an unholy desire uncherished, and the soul is still contaminated. That is definition A. Even if you say, no, not going to by the grace of God, you are still condemned and sinning because you had the thought come to your mind. Is it good or evil to have impure thoughts cross your mind? Let's just be really honest with ourselves. What do you, how do you feel when that impure thought crosses your mind? And it does to all of us in one way or another. What, do you, what, is, what is going on when the evil thought, the impure thought crosses your mind? It's evil, folks. It's part of an evil nature. And I will be so glad that when the day comes when that will be gone forever. Amen. But that isn't going to happen until Jesus comes. The impure thoughts will come. And they feel contaminating, don't they? You feel rotten inside because of it. You feel like you're a hypocrite. But watch it carefully, friends. Never, never, never base your theology on your feelings. Don't wait to feel saved to say, God saved me and he forgave me. When you accept Jesus as your Savior and confess your sins, you are forgiven, no matter what your feelings tell you. And right here, don't feel contaminated until God says you're contaminated. Don't go by your feelings. The impure thought must be tolerated, held on to, cherished, made a part of you. The thought comes to your mind out of your nature. What do you do with it next? By God's grace, do you say, I surrender that thought to you? Or do you say, I want to think about that for a while. I want to spend a little time with that. That's kind of fun. That's the issue right there. Do we tolerate? Do we cherish? And so step three, James 1.14, step three, conceiving is tolerating. Step three is cherishing. That turns temptation into sin. Halfway down the same paragraph, go after the second set of ellipses there. Halfway down the paragraph. No man can be forced to transgress. His own consent must be first gained. The soul must purpose the sinful act before passion can dominate over reason or iniquity triumph over conscience. Temptation, however strong, is never an excuse for sin. Isn't that clear? A huge difference between temptation and sin. And since you folks are good scholars, I want to share a couple of other statements that are not in the outline that I think you'd enjoy. No man can plead his circumstances, his education, or his temperament as an excuse for living in rebellion against God. The sinner is such by his own deliberate choice. You can't plead your birth. You can't plead your nature. You can't plead Adam. Yet a whole world is pleading those things. The sinner is such by his own deliberate choice. Signs of the Times, March 9, 1882. Listen to this one. Before sin exists in the heart, the consent of the will must be given. And as soon as it is given, sin is triumphant and hell rejoices. Isn't that clear? Before sin exists in the heart. The statement I began with today by one author says, we make sinful choices because we are already sinners by nature. 
We've got sin in our nature, that was saying. And so that's why the sinful choices come out. In other words, we are sinful in heart before we consent to sin. This says just the opposite, doesn't it? Before sin exists in the heart, the consent of the will must be given. Yes, there is such a thing as a state of sin, but it comes after the choice to sin. Not before. Signs of the Times, December 18, 1893. And another one. We are told over and over that we are born separated from God. You've heard that, I'm sure. We're born separated. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God. That's how you get separated. Not by birth, but you get, you get separated by choosing to sin. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 235. So those are a few thoughts that might be of some help. All right, let's finish up this last statement or two here. Said the angel, if light comes and that light is set aside or rejected, then comes condemnation and the frown of God. But before the light comes, there is no sin, for there is no light for them to reject. Wow. Talk about a clear one, huh? Mm -hmm. At least to me. Before the light comes, there is no sin. And then I love the next one. There are thoughts and feelings suggested and aroused by Satan that annoy even the best of men. But if they are not cherished, if they are repulsed as hateful, the soul is not contaminated with guilt and no other is defiled by their influence. The old saying is, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. <laughs> you can't stop the temptations from coming within your nature. And these thoughts and feelings annoy the best of us. But if they are not cherished, the soul is not contaminated. Well, those are my reasons for believing a very small minority position on the nature of sin. And remembering again, it's not just about sin. It's about all of the other results on that tree we talked about. If you believe sin is your nature, then Christ can't have our nature. Then it's justification only. Then there's no perfection. And Adventism ceases to be Adventism. However, if sin is choice, then Christ chose not to sin. Justification and sanctification can both forgive and heal and restore, and God can perfect his people. And Adventism is alive. That's what it's all about, my friends. And this is one of the most muddy areas in all Adventist thinking today. It really is. Uh, this is, this is, is probably the most misunderstood subject in the Adventist Church. So we think of the nature of Christ, but this is even more misunderstood. All right, it is now five minutes to four. I promised a few minutes. Is there a question or two that I didn't make clear that you would like to ask? Because, yes, go ahead. No? Yes, that's you. Mm -hmm. uh, way back at the beginning, All right. All right. In this view, in definition A, in the view that we are sinners because we have this magma chamber of sin in us, that means we must have forgiveness after the close of probation just as much as forgiveness before the close of probation. That is what the Christian world believes, and that is what many Adventists believe, and I'm saying that is deadly error and will destroy Adventism to believe that. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Then what happens when a sinner, um, when probation ends, the sinner is then, not that the sinner is perfect, ah. he's not going to sin because there is no 
All right, all right. And that, okay, that, that is confusing. If you're willing to try to remember your question and hold it, I will deal exactly with that issue tomorrow in the subject of perfection. That is, and you can't be here? Oh, I see. <laughs> okay, that's, that's always the way it is. I'll try to deal with it very briefly, and I won't be able to do justice to it in one minute. I just won't. So the best thing you can do on that is get the, the messages over Audioverse or whatever, and, uh, or, or my book or whatever, and, and see what, what is there. Face to face with the real gospel. All right, um, and so what I'm going to say there is that we will come to the place. Remember it says here that, and let's look at that statement once again here on the second page, the very next to the last one. Thoughts and feelings suggested and aroused by Satan, but if they are not cherished, if they are repulsed as hateful, the soul is con not contaminated with guilt. I believe that by God's power and God's grace, God's children with fallen natures will so surrender their fallen natures and their past life of sin to him that they will come to the place as Christ did for 33 years, that they would die rather than to sin against God. They will say, it doesn't matter, I, I will never again dishonor my God by rebelling against him in thought, word, or action. And at that moment, they will no longer need forgiveness for sins. They still need grace. They still need God's empowering care. They still need overcoming grace. But they do not need forgiving grace. And Jesus can step out of the sanctuary, which means no more forgiveness offered, but always empowerment, always Holy Spirit, always strength from God. The only thing that closes at the close of probation is forgiveness for sins. And that's what ends at the close of probation. Yes. All right. We are, we are, it's necessary for us to overcome impure thoughts. All right. And that's a part of our character. All right. We cannot hold on to All right. And so what we have right here are two dimensions to that. The impure thoughts that we have tolerated, those are sin. We've held on to them. We've made them a part of ourselves. And those things are, 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 are sins. And we must overcome that cherishing, that tolerating, because sin takes place right here, my folks. Not out there, not in our foot, not in our hand, but in our minds. And that must be overcome. Now, when those thoughts come to us, that's the point of decision. Will I hold on to it, or will I surrender that thought to Jesus Christ? And that is the overcoming that has to take place whenever the thought comes to us. I give that to you, Jesus. Go ahead. That's right. Precisely. That's right. And so there is the whole thing of whether it's a temptation or whether it is a cherished sin. One more question and then we'll close. And I saw the hand first way in the back, so that's the one I'll take. Yeah. Yes. And you the standards. Ah, that's in the first gospel. That's in the first gospel. Make sure you differentiate between what I said was the false gospel and the true gospel. In the false gospel, standards have nothing to do with salvation because you're saved by believing in Jesus, and that's only a result of salvation. In the second gospel, standards are shutting the door to Satan's voices to the soul so that God has a voice to our soul and has an ability to speak to us and therefore can save us. So standards are very crucial to our salvation in the second gospel. They do not bring us salvation. They do not cause salvation, but they close a door to Satan so that Jesus can bring us salvation. 
Therefore, they're crucially important. Prevents presumption. So it is in the first gospel only that standards are irrelevant to salvation. All right, we're going to have to take a little break because now it's 4 o'clock.